0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: It's nice to see you here tonight. Um, I was asked if I would give a couple of titles for the talks that I'm invited here to give for these couple of months, and so I decided that I would talk about Buddhist prayer, the power of Buddhist prayer, I think because it's, a, it's an important part of my own practice, and I don't think it gets talked about very much, so I thought I might share a bit about that. There's actually one monk that I know who who ha, who does talk about prayer and Theravadan monk. Uh, he's uh, Ajahn Manindo. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an he's the abbot at the um, monastery in Harnham in England, in the uh, Northumberland, and he has. Um, a little chapter in his book, Unexpected Freedom, if you've ever seen that book, on prayer and devotion. Theravadan Buddhism can often be rather dry, a bit devoid of devotional practices, or at least it can seem that way, especially it, sometimes the way we take it up in the West. But I, my sense is, This group started because of wanting a bit more of the devotional side and chanting. And I find prayer such an important part of I think aligning myself in a way that is supportive. So in... in, um, Buddhist practice. It's it's a non-theistic religion, so prayer doesn't have quite the same orientation that it may in a theistic tradition. It's not about asking um, supreme creator for help although in my prayers I do ask for help. And uh, coming to any task with an attitude, a prayerful attitude, I find extremely helpful. Ajahn Maninda talks about it as you're really pouring out your heart's deepest wish. So... Something like, may I be free from suffering, or may all beings be free from suffering, is is a prayer. It's a, a deep wish of the heart. So when we allow ourselves to give expression to what we really wish... And that's prayer. So I find that regardless of what I'm about to do, whether it's um, talking about the Dhamma or meeting with someone or writing an email, when I remember to actually, bring myself into a prayerful attitude. Something is different. Profoundly different than when I don't. And I really think that it's the same really regardless of what religion we are practicing in There's a power in tuning in and opening ourselves to what might arrive as support for whatever it is that that we're doing or, or wishing. So... I think a prayerful attitude when we come to meditation is extremely valuable. For me it feels like there's a a great dose of humility that comes with that. The ego just doesn't have as much of a space. Because I think there is a an aspect of connection with what's larger in some sense through this prayer. Ajmanindo tells this story of when he was talking with a Christian monk and he asked, how do you teach people to pray. And this monk said, it's not something that's taught, it's something that's caught. You catch it from someone who who knows how to do it, who does it. <laughs> and I think that's right. And Ajahn Manindo said that he felt like he caught it in Thailand where the the monks would come to the practice with a prayerful attitude so i think that's from my from my personal experience the way i would describe that feeling in myself is a kind of surrender a kind of letting go and um uh, an attunement, a tuning in to the deepest, wholesome desires of the heart. I find that really beautiful and inspiring. And I don't find Theravada Buddhism dry at all. (laughs) Um... Like the chanting we did earlier, I find really inspiring. Even though it's talking about, you know, aging is dukkha, and birth is dukkha, and death is dukha. we're all going to die, and, you know. <laughs> I actually find that inspiring. <laughs> um, because that's the way it is. And... I think the inspiring part is that there's nothing that we need to feel unhappy about about any of that. It's uplifting to see things as they are and to be able to be present with that. So chanting, I think, is another form of prayer. I think mantra is a. I see it as a form of prayer. And in terms of praying to something or um, someone, I think that it depends on how we look at things. Like sometimes people ask, I'm sure you've heard this question, or maybe you've had this question, do Buddhists believe in God? And my favorite answer, one that a very experienced, wonderful monk in Thailand gave, was it depends on what you, th- what you believe God is. It depends on your definition of God. In Buddhism of course it's not it's not a uh, the idea of a supreme being who's controlling things. I think it's much more a sense of of holiness, at least and, and this is probably quite personal how we how we see this, a sense of what's holy and wholesome and mm. sort of this this seamless web of, of energy and maybe love or joy. And this, the suttas are certainly full of references to the other world, the beings in the other world and how they come to talk to the Buddha and to other monks and nuns and and my sense is that there's also a certain amount of help and support that comes from that other world. This the same monk I just referred to is um, Ajahn Panyawato. I would imagine you've probably got a DVD set of his if you're here in the library. I'm not sure, but they made a sort of memorial set of DVDs when after he passed away and he was um, amazing he was English and he spent I think 40 years living with Ajahn Mahabua, um, near Udantani in Thailand and I was very um, fortunate to be able to visit him and spend time there and li- just just sit there on the ground and listen to him talk about Dhamma answer people's questions and he talked about the questions he sometimes get you know people say are the devas real and he would say they're as real as you or I (laughs) and He also said that um, you can pray to the arahants. Now that's kind of mind-boggling because the concept of an arahant is that their work is finished and they go out like a flame, right? But there is this sense that some very developed meditation masters have one, another one that I'm thinking of in particular who talks about the arahants being present at you know, like a katina ceremony or something and the way he makes sense of that is that their barami, their goodness the goodness that they brought into the world still reverberating, still with us. I mean, I certainly can see that. I can see the goodness of the Buddha still with us, still having an effect on all of us. And what Ajahn said about praying to the Arhans is that he said, if you ask for help, but you're not in trouble, nothing will probably happen. <laughs> but if you do need it, something probably will happen. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. And I think those kinds of things about what the um, other world has... I was looking today, actually, at the sutta and the Majimanakai and the middle-length discourses where the Buddha says... That there is the other world, and when one says there is the other world, and see, you know, knows there is the other world, then they have right view, and that encouraging other people to recognize that there is the other world does exist. There, there is such a place, such a thing. That's that's a positive thing. But how that works exactly, I think, is something that we can discover internally. And how that works with regard to the way we form our prayer, um, I think, is a matter of self-exploration, of exploration for oneself. So I think, basically, I would say that I find the practice of prayer extraordinarily uplifting and supportive. And I would encourage anyone who has that kind of leaning towards devotion to um, develop it. And I have to say that when I started in my Buddhist path I was a bit confused about this I felt like I had to leave that behind and I think sometimes people have that feeling that idea and I mean I don't think I'm the only one (laughs) and then it felt like there was something missing for me And I don't think that's just coming out of the conditioning of of growing up in, in a sort of Protestant environment. I think that it's part of what's natural to the heart to give it that kind of sensitive, deep, meaningful expression. And to recognize that there's not a definite boundary, between me and everything else. So attuning to what's truly good helps us to incline more and more in that direction. And it helps us to purify our minds and our actions. which brings a lot of joy into one's life. Another thing Ajahn Manindo said is that even though he may not sit in meditation every day, he prays every day. And I think that that's lovely because it's a kind of practice that's so adaptable to whatever you're doing. (laughs) Driving is a great time to pray. When I was driving for the monastery in England, because it was England, you're driving on the other side of the road, roundabouts, driving all different kinds of vehicles, big buses, and everything. I I prayed every time before I got on the road. (laughs) It was absolutely essential. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my reflection on Buddhist prayer. Thank you. Do you have any questions?
2: Uh, I recently uh, sat a retreat and I found I sort of discovered that when I was trying to meditate by following the instructions in my head that it became very very unpleasant Mm -hmm. and so I, I moved my awareness from kind of the head to the heart and I think discovered some form of maybe more praying than meditating. Um, I think the thing I'm most curious about, that there's this Buddhist, uh, this Pali term, citta, and which, as I understand, refers to the heart-mind. And sometimes that's described as one. But I think I experience it as, a, as two. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could say something about that. Mm that there is you know that there's something like the head seems to do one thing and the heart seems to do something else
1: yeah so it's it's true that the chitta is that word is translated variously as heart or mind but it is really chitta i mean it's not two things and you can see all kinds of references in the suttas about the citta and what the citta, you know, like let's just take as an example Anapanasati and you look at the sutta and it talks about the citta sankara and how you calm that and then it talks about being present with the citta. And from what comes out of my own exploration of that, is I kind of leaving behind what I think of as heart or mind. So when, when in reality I do feel like my ideas of the heart are closer to what I experience of the chitta, because my ideas of the mind are very much about rational kind of analytical thinking which um, has its place. It's an excellent tool. but it's not the function in meditation. I believe that's most helpful. And the, so, so the chitta, I think, is um, I guess the way I experience it is deeper than that in a way. I mean, I know in in the in the Thai culture, they locate the mind at the heart level. Where we say the mind is at the head, and they would when they talk about the mind, it's here in the chest. But I'm not so sure it's locatable. I think it's more, you know, like like when the masters talk about having our planting our awareness right at the chitta right at the place where thought and feeling arise you know i kind of ask myself what does that mean how do i do that and then the answer doesn't come out of some logical thinking or some fantasy that I can create. It comes out of an intuitive sense. So I think in our culture, we think of that as what's coming out of the heart. So my, my approach, at least, to this mystery is to just kind of drop in to the best of my ability to that stillness where that intuition can arise. With a question, and I th- that question, like you know, what is this? What is his chitta, and how do I come to know it and its formations? And I feel like throughout our practice, if we can identify a question like that, something we really don't understand fully, or um, something that we Know about, but we don't know deep in ourselves. You know, then I think that's a beautiful way to motivate our practice. So taking, just taking that question of what is the citta and it's not like my answer, if I could actually give one or anyone else's, is really going to do the job. But taking that in and really sitting with that question, for me that's another kind of prayer. And and like when Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. I have to say that is my experience again and again. If I hold a question like that, some aspect of the Dhamma teaching that I don't understand, that I don't feel like I've got really at a deep level, and if i hold that question and i and i let that sort of percolate in the background and i do my best to find that point of stillness where you know the vastness of what can be truly known is available then the answers come
0: I'd like to give you my idea of citta. See what you think. Uh, I link it. I link it to the uh, concept of dependent origination. Uh, so I, th- I think I noticed that every time I have a thought, it uh, stimulates, however mildly, or but sometimes quite strongly, uh, an emotional response in me. Um, Maybe just because of conditioning. Uh, uh, if I have a thought, then I'm prone to having a, an emotional response to that thought. Um, but, uh, but but I, my thoughts, whatever they are, I, I do have them, and, and emotional responses occur. So uh, so I find it useful to check into my body and see where those emotional responses happen. And... Uh, heart area, or the throat, or the stomach, or clenching my jaw, or, or just whatever it is. This might be many things. Um, so that, that's how I think of the mind and the heart as being not the same thing, but inextricably linked, uh, whatever. And if you have, if you have an emotion, it tends to stimulate thoughts about those emotions, too. So there's that Back and forth, which um, um, and and the entire field of thoughts and emotions is, I guess, what I think of as chitta. But if but even as I speak, I'm starting to think it's it's more the the body or the heart than the mind. That's, I guess that's what I check in with.
1: Well, I think that that. Hmm. Even starting out with, I think, doesn't seem quite right.
3: <laughs>
1: My experience also is that there's an attendant feeling coming with thoughts. And I've heard other people reflect on this as well. It, and there's some question about what comes first. But for me, it seems like the thought comes in and a feeling comes immediately with it. I resonate most with what you said about that whole field being the chitta or the chitta itself being the ground for that and the thoughts and feelings being part of the formations that arise in the chitta. All of that sounds pretty analytical, so I think that that's fine and that can help us go deeper. But the real knowing is something we probably can't even give language to. My guess, <laughs> yeah. I don't think of the citta as really that, um, like more focused with the feelings arising. I think that that, that the, the citta is like the container where all of that happens. This would be my my way of experiencing it.
0: And can our chitta change over time as we reflect upon our thoughts and our feelings, and uh, we decide we, we come to an understanding of what's what's useful, Maybe, and so we modify how we respond uh, to our thoughts, or our feelings. Um, So that if we have so we have a little bit more say in, in in what happens next when a thought arises or feeling arises. So does that lead to a, a change in our chitta? Our chitta is mutable according to our becoming more skillful.
1: Well, based on what I've heard teachers say, I think it's not the chitta that changes. It's the Chitta sankara, the formations. So sankara, you can have, you know, sankara or in Sanskrit it's samskara. It's, these are the formations that get created, or you know, the mental formations. So all all those kandas, the 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 feeling, the mental formations the perception, the sanya, vidana, sanya, sankara, they're all pretty closely related. You can't really tease them apart. And so it's, it's, I think it's it's that that changes. And I've heard master teachers talk about pure chitta. It's like, without defilement, um, you know, that, I don't think that that's really part of what changes. Just my thought. Yeah. So we have about five minutes left, and I think it might be good to chant, uh, sharing the blessings and our closing homage. Page twenty
3: seven. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom Austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.
1: Page twenty four closing
3: homage Arahang Sama Sambudobaga, the Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one. Buddha Bhagawan I render homage to the Buddha the Blessed One Suagato Bhagawatamo the teaching so completely explained by him. Dhamma, Namasami, I bow to the Dhamma. Supatipano Bhagavato Sawakasango, The blessed ones, disciples who have practiced well, Sangha Namami, I bow to the Sangha.